You know, last week I was talking to one of my daughters about some of her favorite movies when she was growing up, and I realized that at least over the last 20, 25 years, uh, much of my familiarity with movies really is more to do with what my kids watch. You know, for 25 years, I haven't really chosen many movies that I want to watch. Pretty much all the movies I go to are things that I, they chose, and I go with them. And, um, and even, for example, there's a whole genre of movies that is made for older t- you know, uh, ch- children and young teenagers. And um, I don't know what movies came out in that genre this year. I really don't want to know because I have no desire to see any of those movies. However, from 2000 to 2015, pretty much all the movies made out for that group I saw because my kids were that age during that period of time and they dragged me to take it, you know, to see them. And, uh, and so I saw those movies. And it's interesting, you know, and then I think about some of those movies and I think about, you know, what they were, what they, you know, what they taught. One of the movies that they really loved uh, was one that was made in 2001, became very popular amongst many. It's The Prince's Diaries. Some of you might be familiar with that. And it's about this, this girl. She's a socially awkward, withdrawn high school girl named uh, Mia, whose life is then radically changed when her grandmother, whom she had never met before, suddenly shows up to tell her that she is actually royalty. Her grandmother is the queen of uh, this nation of Genovia. And uh, her dad, who just died, was actually the crown prince. And now since he has died, she is now next in line to inherit the throne. And, And the movie shows this young Mia being radically changed by the information and the realization of of who she is. Over time, she learns to understand that she's a princess, and because she believes it, then she acts differently. She learns to act as a princess. See, early in the movie, she's not only social awkward, she's withdrawn, she's fearful, she's bullied by others. But by the end of the movie, it's not just that her appearance has been changed by a makeover, everything about her has been changed. She becomes confident. She stands up for herself. She stands up for others. She commits to do the right thing even when it's hard. Why? Because she realized that she's royalty, and then she learns to live into that identity. One of the best illustrations of how she's changed is early in the movie, she has to give a speech in front of her high school speech class. And she's so intimidated by the thought of that that she literally runs out when it's time for her to speak to vomit because she can't handle the tension. But at the end of the movie... She then is standing before a group of, people, of international press and gives this moving speech about why she has chosen to accept the role of the crown princess. And what's changed? More than anything else, it's her sense of identity and purpose. Before she saw herself as an awkward teenager who had nothing to offer, by the end of the movie, she believes herself to be the crown princess, and because she is that, she then has a responsibility. She acts differently. Now, understand that that's a fictional movie about a fictional princess and a fictional uh, nation, and, and, and you say, okay, well, you know, what does that have to do with anything in real life? Um, well, here's one of the things that I want to suggest. I think that one of the reasons that this movie became so popular is that although it's fiction, the story rang true with something that we know to be true deep in our hearts. That deep down, we know that how someone thinks of themselves totally impacts their behavior. So the idea that if we had somebody that totally was transformed in who they believe themselves to be, the result would be that they would be transformed in their actions. And so we watch the movie and we see this young woman totally transformed, 
and we think that that makes sense. Now, I know as my daughters watched it, there was a sense of fantasy, and they were probably thinking with many other girls, well, what if that happened to me? What if I suddenly found out as royalty, and, and how would I change? And um, Well, okay, let's, let's go there. Okay, let's, let's take it out of fantasy. What if someone came up to you and, and said that, okay, you are in fact royalty, what would change? What's the truth about who you really are? What is the truth, and, and what do you believe about that truth, and does it impact you? Are you an awkward nobody that has nothing to offer? Or are you, in fact, chosen by the king to be a child of the king and, and therefore set apart for a purpose and loved by the king who challenges you to believe and accept and live up to your true identity? While I started talking about a fictional movie, what I want you to realize is that these questions don't come from the movie. They really come from God's Word, from what is taught in the book of Ephesians. See, one of the things we're going to see in the next weeks as we dive into this first part of Ephesians is that the core of the first three chapters is all about God's calling us to understand our identity, who we are in Christ, this new identity. This idea that we may think of ourselves as nobody. We might think of ourselves have nothing to offer. And, and God's saying, no, I want you to realize that if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you've asked God to, for, God to forgive you through Jesus' death on the cross, then what that means is the sovereign king and creator of the universe has chosen you, has adopted you as his child. You are, that's your true identity. You are a child of the sovereign king of the universe. And it continues that not only have you been adopted, that now you are his child, he now gives you all the blessings that a father would give any child. Everything that is his is now yours. Now, we might listen to that and say, well, that's great spiritual truth, and, and, and I believe that on Sunday, but practically it really doesn't change the way that I live on Monday. No, if we really understood who we are, the fact is, is that always will change us. And it's not just these are spiritual truths, these are practical truths that God wants us to understand because if we really understand our new identity, it will change everything about our lives. But the challenge even Paul recognizes in the book is these are things that are so incredible, so wonderful that it's hard to believe. In fact, one of the reoccurring themes in the first three chapters of Ephesians is that Paul repeatedly comes back to it and says, basically, I just pray you that you would believe this. I pray that God would do the miracle of giving you the ability to understand this. Because these are great truths, but man, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to really believe. Look what Paul says about this in Ephesians 1, verse 17. He's saying, part of his prayer, I pray that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which he has called you, what are his riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And I'm praying that God would give you spirit revelation. I'm praying that God would give you so that your hearts would be enlightened, so that you would get this. These things are so wonderful, I could tell you, but you can repeat them and still not get it. I pray that it would dig deep into your heart and that you would really understand and believe your identity. 
Another example where he says the same thing. In the end of Ephesians 3, he again is praying for us. And look what he says. He says, I'm praying that God, the God of, you know, that God may dwell in your hearts through faith. And, and as you do so, he may give you the ability to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I'm praying that you would know how loved you are. This, this love that surpasses your ability to understand it, it's only if God enlightens you by a miracle of God, then you'll get it. These things are so wonderful that it's, apart from God giving us the ability, we, we, just, we can say it, but we don't really get it. We don't believe it. And how important is it? He's saying it's so important if you really believed and understand this truth, if you really believed in your identity, if you really believed that you were in fact royalty spiritually, it would change your life. So let's start diving into this truth. Let's start looking in these early verses here and, and seeing what the, what the Bible's teaching us. Right off the bat, in the introductory verses, it's teaching us something about our true identity and purpose in Christ. Now, it starts by Paul speaking about himself. If you have your Bibles open there, you see Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And you might be saying, okay, well, that's great. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I know I'm a unique guy. He says, I know that God has called me to be an apostle. He was set apart for this unique purpose. And, and, but what's that have to do with me? And that's him. I'm not special. I'm not important by that like that. Okay, well, let's look at the rest of the verse. Okay, we saw right in the beginning, he says, Paul says, I know I'm an apostle. I know I'm called and set out by God. I have this unique thing. But then he addresses us as the readers. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Here's what you have to realize. The first readers he wrote to were in Ephesus, but this is written to people and followers of Christ throughout all generations. And so when we look at this, it's not only to the saints who are in Ephesus, but as we read it now thousands of years later in Akron, it's appropriate for us to read what he's saying here to the saints who are in Akron and are faithful in Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here is amazing for some of you that come from certain church backgrounds. I myself, you know, as baptized Catholic as a child, Catholics taught something about saints. And so saying that we're saints almost sounds offensive. It sounds wrong. And, but yet the teaching here that he's saying is clear. He's saying we are saints who are set apart for a purpose. He's saying if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that means that you are a saint. Now, I know that totally disagrees with some of the traditions we've been raised with. You know, some churches teach that, you know, saints, well, they're this unique few people that they're exceptional. They live exceptional lives. They, they've even done miracles in their life. And, and after they die, well, then the church elevates them to sainthood. And, and even when you look at pictures of saints, I mean, they just look different. You know, they look holy. They, they've got this glow about them. They've got a halo around their head. They just, you can tell that they're different. I thought about that, and I said, that's really discouraging, you know, because they got a halo. I've got ugly sores and rashes from chemotherapy on my head. I'm covering my head because I'm, this is the opposite of a halo. This is really bad. If a saint is, looks that certain way, this is really discouraging. But then you realize, okay, well, no, that's, that's tradition. That's not, that's not the Bible at all. What does the Bible say? No, to the saints who are in Christ Jesus, all of us. That means I'm a saint. Hey, you know, I, I, I kind of like that. Don't call me Pastor Mike anymore. It's St. Mike. 
I mean, that's like, I like that sound of that. Okay, say, call me St. Mike. That's, I'll call you Saint as well, I mean, because that's who we are. And, well, maybe not go there, but, but, that, but it's actually true. That's the reality of what the Bible is teaching. And you might be saying, but I don't feel like a saint. I don't feel like there's anything very saintly about me. I don't have this halo. I've not done the miracles. Okay, but okay, what is a saint? Not according to tradition. What is a saint according to the Bible? See, the word here that's translated in our Bible, saints, is actually the word holy. It's plural for holy. We're the holy ones. And the word holy literally means set apart. We are the set apart ones. We are people that have been set apart. So in calling us saints, what God is saying is, okay, you have been set apart. You have been chosen by God. You have been set apart because he loves you. You've been set apart for relationship with him. You have been set apart so that your life looks different, set apart from the rest of the world. You've been set apart for a purpose. Now keep that in mind. Let's go back to the whole of verse 1. See what Paul says about himself, what he says about us. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the, faith, and the faithful in Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, okay, I'm Paul. I know my identity. I've been set apart. I've been set apart as an apostle for the purpose of loving God, of knowing him, of serving him. Now, let me go to you. You likewise have been set apart. You are likewise a saint, one who is set apart for God, set apart for a purpose, set apart to know God, to worship him, to, to serve him. See, Paul knew what his role was, but when he's saying it, literally, we, I think we could take some of what he's saying, Paul, an apostle, we should almost fill in our name, our occupation. Okay, I'm Mike, I'm a pastor, and okay, you might, you know, you might be Bill, and I'm a computer programmer, or I'm, I'm Sally, and I'm a mom, and, or you know, I'm, I'm a teacher, and whatever it is, whatever your name, whatever your occupation, God has set you apart. God has said, I made you sacred for this purpose. I've called you, I want to use you, and, and I want you to, to you know, realize that you're not only been set for relationship, but, but to be used by me, to to serve me, to, to represent me in the world, even to do some miracles. And you, wait, wait a second, no, let's go back, back, back up, Mike. You know, miracles? Again, that's the Catholic thing. That's not, right? How does God want to use you? Look what Jesus says about this. John chapter 14. Okay, look at what Jesus does in describing how he wants to use us. If we're a follower of Christ, what should be normal for us? John 14, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do also the works that I do. This is Jesus speaking. If I'm a follower of Christ, I should be doing the works that he does, and even greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Wait a second, that's amazing. Now, when he's saying that, it's not necessarily I'm going to do the miracles that Jesus did. It's not the physical miracles, but the fact is, is that I should be representing Jesus so that he's working in me, so that I'm impacting my world in a miraculous way like Jesus himself would. That's what he's called us apart. And we said, well, but, but I can't do that. I don't have the ability. I don't, I'm nothing special. There's nothing that glows about me. I just have the scars. Okay, well, let me remind you again, for starters, verses we read a few moments ago. Remember when we started this off and we said one of the things that is a reoccurring theme throughout the whole book of the first three chapters is that Paul repeatedly says, these things are so great you won't be able to believe them. These things are so incredible that I pray that God would do the miracle so he'd open up your eyes so that you can believe what is true about you. My friends, that means if you're struggling to believe this, it's not because it's not true. It's not because you haven't been set apart. It's not because God doesn't call you a saint. If you're struggling, believe it. It's because it's so great that 
You have a hard time believing what is already true of you. That's the true reality. That's your identity. Now, one of the reasons we can struggle is that we struggle because we have not only the wrong idea of what a saint is, but how someone becomes a saint. Because, again, many of the churches that think that a saint is really the special person also say, well, they, they're made a saint because of what they have done. And we think, again, um, I'm not that. Well, okay, what does the Bible say about the origin of this identity and purpose? Let's go back to verses 1 and 2. To the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does this identity come from? It's not to the saints who have been good, to the saints who are gifted, to the saints who have proven it, who have done the miracles. No, it's to the saints who, how do they get there? By grace and peace, by the gift of God. It's not what we accomplish. It's not something that we earn by our goodness or by our ability. It's something that is given by the grace of God so that each one of us, what do we bring to the table? All we bring is our need. My sainthood isn't based on anything that I've done, anything that I am. It's based on my awareness and admission of my need, my surrender, and my acceptance of God's free gift. And He does everything. He changes my identity. Now, that's just the introduction. And as we get into this, what we realize is that it's some amazing blessings here, but then Paul gets into the meat. He gets into the main course and, and beyond the appetizer. And, and, and what we're going to see is that what follows, uh, verses thir- 3 through 14, is, is one incredible sentence in the Greek. It's the longest sentence in all of ancient Greek literature. Now, in our English Bibles, it breaks it up because it just is so much that we don't know how to you know, put it in one. But for Paul, it was this one idea. Here are the blessings that you have, and he starts, and he just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling. These are the incredible nature. We're going to take three weeks just to look at this one sentence. It's out, it's out awesome. And this whole sentence can, in a sense, be summed up in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And and the rest of the sentence is basically saying, okay, and these are the blessings that he's given us. This is what every spiritual blessing looks like. Okay, so let's start by saying, what is the blessing? What is the nature and the scope of these blessings? God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That sounds incredible. And even as we read that, many of us might be thinking, that sounds great, but that's not my reality. You know, I'm, you know, the fact is my life, I'm, I might be blessed, but hey, my job, I'm worried about my job. I've got bills coming throughout my my ears. I've got, my kids are out of control. My marriage is on the rocks. And I might have some blessings, but every spiritual blessing, royalty, and I'm not living like royalty. I don't feel that that's true. Okay, let's look at this. What is he teaching? The key to understanding this starts by asking, what is the greatest blessing that God gives you? And some might say, well, salvation, you know, and well, that's in some sense right. And especially when we're thinking salvation, we're thinking one day we're going to have the promise of salvation, we're going to have heaven, and when we get heaven, man, then we're going to have everything. We're going to live, living and we're going to be living like royalty then. We're going to have all the blessings we could imagine, but that's in the future. Okay, let's look back at Paul's words. He's not talking future. He's not saying that God will give you every spiritual blessing. He said God has given you every spiritual blessing. It's something that he has done in the past that should have a current reality. Because he has done this, 
then we should be living with these blessings in our current reality. It's not what we one day get, it's what we currently have and that we learn to appropriate. So again, I'm going to ask you, what is the greatest blessing that God gives? Not the greatest blessing He will give, what is the blessing that He has given you? Now, to help illustrate that, let me go to physical, you know, illustration of, of our human relationships. For those of you who are married, let me ask you, what is the greatest blessing that your spouse has ever given you, the greatest gift that your spouse has ever given you? Thankful for my beautiful wife, Sandy. The greatest gift that she has given me is not what she gave me at Christmas. It's not any physical present that she's given me over the years. It's nothing material. You know, the greatest gift that she's given me is herself, is relationship. It's the relationship we share, the way that she has opened herself to me, the way that she has given herself to me, the commitment that she has made to me to walk with me through life. Everything else Every other blessing flows from that. It's a natural extension of that. Okay, so let's go back, and it says that God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. What is the greatest blessing that God has given us? If we understand this in human relationships, God's greatest gift that he gives us is our relationship with him. That if you've been forgiven again by Christ, if you have, you have this relationship and that's the greatest gift that he's given. And what does the Bible say? We're going to see in a minute that the relationship is like that of a parent and a child. It's one that he has chosen to adopt us, that he has chosen to love us. He has chosen to make us his children, you his child, that he's chosen to give you a love that is totally unconditional and without limits. And with that love, he commits everything of himself to our well-being because that's what incredible dads do. See, the greatest gift that God gives us is a relationship with himself and all the other blessings that we could imagine and experience, everything else flows from is a result of an expression of this relationship. Because we have this relationship with God, everything else comes from that. In fact, we're going to see this in this, in this great verse, you know, this great section, these, again, verses 13 through uh, four, or 3 through 14, all one sentence. In that one sentence, Paul says the phrase, in Christ, 12 times in one sentence. In Christ, God has brought us into this relationship. In Christ, because we are in Christ, we have this, and we have this, and we have this. Because we have this relationship, we are now have a new identity. And because we have this relationship with God and a new identity, everything else flows from it. Every other blessing. Nothing has been withheld because that's what it means to have this kind of intimate relationship. And Paul's prayer throughout this whole time then becomes, I pray that you understand it. I pray that you believe it. I pray that you appropriate these blessings, this identity that is yours. And if we don't, if you're here and you say, I, I just, I'm not experiencing that. I don't really believe I'm royalty. I don't believe that I'm set apart. I don't. If you don't, if I don't, it's not because God hasn't made you royalty. It isn't because God hasn't set you apart. It isn't because any of these things aren't true of you. The only reason we don't live in that is that we really don't believe it. We don't understand it. Either we think that we're still a pauper, either we think that we're still a sinner, we're a failure, or even when God says it, we just don't really believe it's true. See, now again, God's greatest gift is this relationship, and, and, and it's that of a parent-child. And the basis, the way that we do it is, is not by earning, it's by adoption. Look what he says in verses 4 and 5. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. See, here's what you need to realize when we look at this, a huge part to Christian living is understanding and accepting that we're in fact God's children, that we are royalty, that we have all the rights and privileges that come with being God's children. If you again have accepted Christ's forgiveness, if you've asked that, that's the truth of your identity. You are a child of the King. In fact, it's so vital that throughout the New Testament, God constantly refers to himself as Father. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, he seldom does. It's only 14 times in the Old Testament, and then it's always referred to in a general sense, never a personal sense. In the New Testament, Jesus teaches us to come to the Father, not only calling him Father, but Abba, Daddy, this intimacy of relationship. And it's such a part of it that now we understand that we refer to God the Father as Father. That's his name. That's what we understand. What that means is that if we don't understand the fatherhood of God, if we don't understand that we're his child, then we just don't understand some of the most basic truths of what it means to be a follower of Christ, of Christian living. When we understand this, then we will face the challenge of believing that we are, that's who we are, then can we believe that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing? See, when we understand that, we're going to realize, when we think about blessings, we even Thanksgiving, we say, what were your blessings? And what we go around and list our blessings, we generally think of things, provisions. I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for health, I'm thankful for family, I'm thankful for this, you know, for this thing that I bought, for this trip we took. My friends, when you understand what it's really saying, what it's saying is the, what God wants us to focus on isn't the provision, but the provider. We have this relationship with the provider, and because we have the provider, we can trust him. And the provision, the things that we think we need may not always be given to us what we think we need or when we think we need it. It may not always play out the way that we long for it to. And that's why we sometimes question, I don't think I have every spiritual blessing. But my friends, if we have the provider, the love of the Father, the one who is unlimited in his love and unlimited in his power, you see, he may not give us everything that we want in the time we want it, just like we as parents don't do that for our young children. But we know that we can trust him because he gives us everything that is good for us according to his unlimited knowledge and wisdom. Let me try to even take this picture and, and go back to the idea of, of adoption. Again, I find it interesting that God's trying to convey something of our relationship with him, and he uses an illustration from what we know in our experience. Because again, we struggle to understand these truths. So it's okay, well, let's think about adoption. So let's think about physical adoption. Back some years ago, Sandy and I had, a, had friends who decided to adopt a boy from Haiti. Now, Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, any orphan that lives there is, I mean, they live in orphanages that are, you know, just barely providing needs. There's very little care at all. Most of the kids that grow up in the orphanages will leave at a young age and end up on the street. Many of them won't live to, you know, adulthood. It's a tremendous, you know, they grow up with, you know, no love, no relationships, no hope, no education, no future. And suddenly you have this boy that that was his reality. And everything changed in a moment. Why? Because this family he knew nothing about suddenly comes in and chooses to adopt him. And by that decision, they take this boy who had been living basically on the streets where he'd be a victim, and suddenly he's taken out of that and he's given a home and a room and, and clothes. 
He's taken from a situation in, in a country that is dysfunctional and, and, you know, just dangerous, and he's suddenly now made a citizen of the United States. He's given the identity not only in that family, but he's brought into a church community and a school community. He, he had no opportunity for education, no future, no hope. He's suddenly now you know, brought into a place where he's receiving school. He's got medical care. He's got, he's, got, he's got community. He's got all these things. He went from a child that had nothing and no hope for his future to now being raised in um, you know, middle-class America, probably one of the, amongst the most blessed children in the world. And, and everything changed. Now, what was the greatest gift that that family gave to that child? Now, if you ask the child what you want, he might, I want this toy, I want this clothes, I might, but the greatest gift wasn't anything, it was relationship. It was choosing to come and adopt, and everything else flowed naturally from that relationship. When that new identity was given, now you are our child, you bear our name, then a host of other privileges and blessings come as a result of that identity. You see, when a child, any parent gives a child a name, he commits himself and everything he does to the welfare of that child. And that's true of God's adoption to us. We are given his name. We are called a follower of Christ. We are God's children. We are made royalty. We are, everything about us has changed. But what are some of the blessings of adoptions? We can go on and on and on. But if we look at even big picture things and some of the things that are kind of referred here, these aren't, this is just a short list and we can go on. But some of the adoption things is that, you know, Jesus, he, he not only, you know, relates to us as, as a king, but he makes us, his child, we're his father, and that gives us access. And imagine if you had a child and his father was the president of the United States. Now, nobody can just run up to the President of the United States. You want to go have a meeting, you can't get in to meet with them. And if, and if someone, a stranger, comes and runs towards the President, they're likely to get shot for just trying to do that. But if the President is your daddy, you see, the child can storm right past the secretary, run right in, he can run and jump in his dad's office. There's ultimate access. We have that kind of access to the King of the Universe. It also means inheritance, you know, that God gives us and promises all that is His. And we're going to see that it talks about this in a couple weeks. And, but even in this, I want you to notice, some people have, have looked at verse 5 and it says that we're adopted as, uh, He's chosen us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. And some people, well, that's kind of sexist, you know, why sons? And well, it's not at all. It's actually one of the most beautiful, you know, opposite of, of sexist. Here's the idea. In the Roman world, only sons could adopt. Only sons had legal privileges to the, uh, any property of the father. A, a, a daughter couldn't be given anything. And what it's saying here is that when we have a relationship with Christ, whether a male or female, whether we think we have something or not, whether the rest of the world will recognize our value or not, we are now all made equal heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We're given identity. We're given everything that is his. It's incredible. Not only that, we're given God's powerful intervention. You see, one of the things that, that young children especially, they believe that dad's all-knowing and all-powerful. He can fix anything, you know. And, and then as we get older, you, our kids start to realize that. But sometimes our kids struggle in the teen years where they realize, hey, dad's got a lot of limitations. <laughs> can I trust him? Hey, I want you to realize that God is all-powerful, is all-knowing, and you will never outgrow that truth. He is without limits. And he gives us access to that wisdom and to that power. In fact, look what it says in, later in Ephesians 1. 
And he says, you know, what is the immeasurable uh, greatness of his power towards us who believe? This is the power that we have according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him on the right hand of the heavenly places. So the same power that God worked in raising Jesus from the dead is the same power we have access to. That's pretty incredible. That's what it means to be a child of God. Not only that, you know, we have the privilege of discipline. Now, you might say, well, loving discipline, that doesn't sound like a great blessing of adoption. Okay, well, let me look at this. Okay, let's think about it this way. We know from experience everyone suffers. We, the Bible teaches everyone is going to suffer. Why? Because we live in a broken world. Now, do you know what it means that we're adopted? It means that God loves us, and in his power, he doesn't allow anything to happen to us except that which he can use for good, that we are that protected, we are that loved. We know that everything is working out for a good purpose. That's incredible. It brings security. Why? Because, you know, any other relationship, we can lose it. We can, we can upset somebody. But when you're adopted, we can do anything. And you're still a child. You're still loved. In fact, even as you think about this, you know, it's ultimate security. Why? Because what we're going to see is we can go back to verses 3 through 5. The source of our adoption is God's grace. It's God's choice. Look again in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What is a blessing? It's relationship with him. And how do we get that relationship? Look what it teaches. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. When we look at that, what is the source of the relationship? How does we get it? How do we get it? It's by adoption. How does that adoption happen? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Next verse, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And it wasn't a choice that he made based on how good we were going to be or how talented or... No, it's not because we deserved it, but he chose according to the purpose of his will. Now, sometimes people say, well, predestination and God's choice, and, you know, that gets in the whole predestination and free will, and, and what do we, you know, do we have, is God predestined us, or do we have free will? And, and, and the answer is an unqualified yes. We do, both. Yeah, you know, the Bible teaches both and the ideas. And, but yet there is a sense that what we see here is that it's not necessarily that debate about that, but it's saying as we understand even our free will, we've got to realize that ultimately that's defined by God's initiation, God's choice. And, and we may not totally understand all the point, but we've got to realize that Paul's using this wording for a reason. It's not to stimulate theological debate about predestination. It's teaching us that however we understand this, we know that God chose you before time, when only he existed. And that means that if God chose you before time, before he, when only he existed, that he's not now going to leave you to the victim of time and choices of life. When you look at this, it even raises a question. Let's go back to the picture of adoption. And when you think about the question, picture of adoption, an important question practically is, okay, what does a child do to contribute to their adoption? Baby does nothing. I mean, I think back of my friends that chose that child, from baby from, a, from Haiti. The child did nothing. He did nothing to contribute to it. He just sat there in his need. And suddenly, a choice was made by these parents to say, we want to adopt a child. They go and they choose this child, and suddenly his whole life changes. 
He's chosen, he was chosen to be taken out of poverty, to be given a new name, a new identity, a new family, and everything that came with that. Now, if we understand that in practice, we may struggle with this whole idea of God's initiation, but if we understand that an adopted child does nothing to contribute to their adoption, then the question is, what do we do to contribute to our adoption? As much as that baby did to contribute to theirs. All we do is we bring our need. All we do is we bring our, our, and, and, and our need and, and our dependence on God and we accept that free gift. Now, here's why it brings security. Because if we understand that we've done nothing to contribute to our adoption, then the question is, if we've done nothing to accomplish it, then what can we do to lose it? Do you understand that God has chosen you, that you are loved by God, that, that not based on what you've done, if you think that you've earned it, you think you can lose it, but if you realize that it's His grace, there's nothing you can do to lose it. Now, does that mean that we have no role, that we have no place? Well, no. God's chosen us, but we still have a role to play in this. Look at verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Here's the challenge that He's giving us. He calls us to understand this identity and then live up to our identity as adopted royalty. See, it's not only that God chooses for salvation, but what it's teaching us is that God chose us and set us apart for a different life, a special purpose. In a sense, you look at that and you say, if you have a child that's a pulper that's living on the streets of Haiti, and, and suddenly the parents come and say, hey, we adopt you, or we're going we're gonna to make you royalty, we're going to bring you into the kingdom, we're going to make you a crown prince, and, and suddenly this is the new identity. What happens if that child says, well, I'm used to eating food out of the trash, I like that better, and he sneaks back out and he starts living on the street. His identity is royalty, but he doesn't believe it. And because he's comfortable with his past, he continues to live down to a false image of who he is. And what it's saying here is this, is that we do nothing to contribute, but God calls us to realize that we've not only been called into relationship with him, we have been set apart for a life that is different. That he wants us to live life that before the foundation of the world, he wants us to be holy and blameless, set apart, different than the rest of the world. Have a life that matters and significant. God doesn't elect us so that we can remain sinners. He doesn't change our identity so we can go back and live like we used to live. That's not who we are anymore. Once you understand this new identity, it should change the way that you live. See, what it's teaching us is that, yes, God does love you just the way you are. And it's not like you have to clean up to come to God. You come to God as you are. You let Him change you. God loves you just the way you are. He reaches out and says, I want this relationship. Will you admit your need? Will you accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? We say, God, I ask you to forgive me. And He will forgive you. He will adopt you. He will give you that relationship just as you are. But once He has adopted you as His child, even though He loves you just the way you are, He also at the same time loves you too much to keep you the way you are. To say, I've adopted you and I've now made you my child. Don't go back out and live in the streets. Don't go out and live the way you used to live. You, when you think about it, you say, well, I'm an addict and that's what I do. Well, that's not who you are. Well, well I'm a person, I've got anger issues and I just do. Well, that's not who you are. That's who you were. That's not who you are. I'm, I'm a person, I have nothing to offer. I'm just going through life and I'm just a nobody. I'm just, that's not who you are. In the eyes of Christ, that's not who you are. If you believe that about yourself, you're believing the wrong things, you're believing the lies of Satan, and you're living down to the lie. What God wants you to hear is from the word of the Father, the one who knows more than anything else, to say, this is your identity. Believe it. I know it's hard. I know it's incredible. It's too good to be true. Believe it. Pray for God to give you the ability to understand it and believe it, because if you believe it, 
Once you understand that you're royalty, suddenly you're going to view life differently. You're going to live life differently. You're going to be a different person because it's natural for you to act in a way that is an outgrowth of who you believe that you are. My friends, I look forward to diving deeper into this because these are such great truths I'm still learning and I'm still struggling to understand. But I hope that we can learn to believe and to understand it together. And, and I, do un, I do unquestionably believe that the more that we do, the more that our life will be transformed from the inside out. Do you understand that you are adopted, that you are sons and daughters, that you are royalty in Christ?